Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of the On The Tape podcast. I am Dan Nathan, joined in studio by Liz Young. She is EY from SoFi. That would be the head market strategist over there at SoFi. And of course, Guy Adami. Welcome, folks. Hello. What up? We got a lot to do. Guy and I had an amazing conversation last week with Dr. Arsani Williams. He runs Logos Capital. We had a great conversation about his investing process as it relates to the biotech industry. We talked GLP-1s. We talked about investing in and around them. We talked about the interest rate environment and what that meant for the biotech space and what it might mean in a different rate environment going forward. You don't want to miss that. That was a great conversation. Guy Adami was in locked and loaded uh, on that one there and really enjoyed that. We also have a ton to do right now. I don't know if you caught what went on in the markets, guys, uh, on Friday, but it was the Powell pushback, I guess that was what the headline was all weekend. And no one seemed to care because they ran the worst crap, okay? And it felt like kind of into year end, new money coming in for the first day of the month and the like. We have gold, guys, gold making new all-time highs. The Bitcoin touching 42,000. The laser eyes are back. Of course, China, China, China. Barons, guys, I don't know if you caught Barons. We're going to do a little thing on Barons. They give AI the cover treatment in, in a big, big way, which I thought was really interesting. And Liz, you might find this interesting. It is the comeback of the 60-40. It had the best, the 60-40 portfolio had the best month guy in 30 years. All right. But we got to start with your pack because your pack is back. And that would be the Green Bay Packers. I think we should start and finish with the pack. No, well, let's just start with it. Above 500 in the wild card race. I mean, the first, the opening drive, the first quarter was sensational. And Jordan Love has thrown a lot of Hail Marys. I love me a good Hail Mary. None of them have landed really until now. (laughs) He threw one last night. I think it was middle of the third quarter and everybody in Wisconsin held their breath 
and it was caught and we were on our way. So I am elated today. I hope Taylor Swift enjoyed her. I think it was her second visit to Lambeau. Okay, I hope really? she enjoyed it. So you're it. saying that sarcastically. No, no, no. I, I mean that sincerely. Yeah. I think it's the best stadium in the world. I hope she enjoyed it again. But I'm glad that we came away with the double. Cut, guy, title town, baby. It was a rematch of, you were there, weren't you? It was the very first Super Bowl, Super wasn't Bowl. it? Yeah, yeah. Chiefs, yeah, that was Hank Stram, yeah. Vince Lombardi. By yeah. the way, Vince Lombardi went to Fordham University. He was one of the seven blocks of granite. But I did not know I will that. tell you just to, so, yeah, thank you. Just to sort of emphasize and layer upon that, Jordan Love is growing up right before our very eyes. He is. And all of a sudden, you see why the Packers made that pick, pissed off Aaron Rodgers, but there has to be a succession plan. And it maybe took longer than Packer fans wanted, but it's a coming of age. And it's going to be interesting on Monday Night Football, a week from today, the Packers of Green Bay traveled to the shithole of the Meadowlands to play the Giants. That should be a fun game. <laughs> All right. Let, let, I say that because before we get, it's been voted by just about anybody that plays, watches, or has even heard of the NFL, the worst place in the history of mankind, deservedly so. I think we do a risk reversal trip to Lambeau next year. I would love that. That that would be epic. We'll make it happen. Right, that, I'm not the one right, with that's, the credit that's card. In the, that's in the cards. Guys, let's Great. talk about this really quickly because we were just chatting about this a little bit. We were talking about that Eagles hosting the San Francisco 49ers, a rematch of the NFC Championship. We obviously know the Eagles won, and they went to lose to the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. But interestingly enough, we were talking about how dominant the Eagles looked in that first quarter. Okay, They came out, and if you were doing in-game betting or this and that or whatever, you might have been dialing up right a little bit for the Eagles there. And then San Francisco, as you said, made some adjustments, and then they ended up just absolutely dominating on the road. But here's the thing I have to ask you guys, because we've been asked this question a lot, and we had a great conversation with Mike Wilson. He's the obviously the chief strategist over at Morgan Stanley on Friday's pod. You got to check that out, people, because we talked a lot about this interesting juxtaposition that Mike has been bearish for most of this year. His fundamental call on the economy has been playing out. His call on the markets has not been, okay, which is really interesting, but his clients Okay, out there, institutional clients have voted him II number one for his spot. And I think that's really interesting. We spent a little time, guy, talking about that. But we've been asked the question. Mike Wilson's been asked the question. When are you going to pivot? Maybe you've been right on the economy. When is your market call going to pivot? And I want to make one point, Guy. You've been really right on the commodity complex. You've been right on the interest rate complex. You've been right on parts of the stock market. You've been really right on gold and the like here. So when we talk about right and wrong, we try to be nuanced. Liz, we're going to talk to you a little bit on the sector front because you've obviously made a lot of nuanced calls. But if we're just looking at the monolith of the S&P 500 or really the S&P 7, do you know what I mean? It's a different story. And we tried to make this point on many occasions that it reminds us a lot of late 2021 before what we had in 2022, which was an overall bear market. So my question for you, Guy, whether you're up there tapping your offensive coordinator in the air who's up above, how do you think about making in-game adjustments or in-season adjustments? And if we are just setting ourselves up to say, throw in the towel like lots of bullish strategists did this time last year, right? Think about that, right? At the lows, like how does that happen? We see what happens to great coaches in the NFL when they do that. How do strategists or pundits or investors like us, how do we do that in season, in game? I think sometimes people reverse engineer and they solve for what the market is doing. So the market's higher. So you try to find, you solve for that. Like, why is the market going higher? And then you back into the bullish thesis. But the reality is, if you're down 14 zip early in a game and you're basically your premise to win the game was run the football, run the football, you don't abandon that until you have to. And 
right now you feel like you're down 14 zip, yet you feel like you've been playing better than everybody else. Like I put something on Twitter last night and I believe this. I said there's so many really nasty things going on and it's across a broad swath of things, economic, geopolitical, all different things in terms of just the commodity sector, the currency sector, obviously the bond market. Yet the S&P 500 is masking all of that right now. And the, the reality is, again, my opinion, at some point, that's going to pay the piper as well. So I'm not abandoning what is basically, if you think about it, so many of these things have come to fruition. The only thing that really hasn't is the performance of the broader market measured by the S&P 500. Because if you look under the surface, obviously, a lot of things have come to pass that way. I'll tell you a couple of things that I've done in the last two or three weeks because the market has run so much because it feels like, oh, my gosh, well, how did I miss all of this? Right. And, and it's outlook season. So I looked back at my 2023 outlook, which was titled this ends one way or another. It turned out it didn't end. And that shock, that's probably the biggest shock to me this whole year is that it didn't end. I figured we would know by the end of this year whether or not we would have a recession to finish this cycle. It would take care of inflation. It didn't really matter what the answer was. It was just I thought we would know. And here we are almost at the end of 2023. We still don't really know. The bulls might argue that we do know. We didn't have one. But the cycle has not reset yet. So I would say we don't know. One of the things that I've nuanced into some of the things that I've said is that I don't want to sound like I'm not recognizing that the market has rallied, right? You have to recognize that the market has rallied and that it is flying in the face of some of the bearish predictions, some of the bearish sentiment that we have about the market and that many people have about the economy. But you have to look at what usually happens in late cycle behavior. And this is very, very typical of late cycle behavior. So maybe it's not so much a matter of saying, OK, the cycle is going to end next month, two months later, whatever, the first half of next year, maybe it's more about, yeah, we're still late cycle. I think we can all agree on that. It's a matter of how long does it take? How painful is it when we get to the end? If you are a bull, you're looking around and we've had a lot of conversations, even with bulls, a bullish strategist guy talking about this late cycle dynamics in the markets and, and what you likely see as far as in the major indices. And we've highlighted this on many occasions. I mean, look at the equal eight S&P. Now it's up 6% on the year versus an S&P that's up 20% on the year. Look at small caps after rallying 11 or 12%. Now they're only up five or 6% on the year. They were trading horribly. They're still down more than 20% from those 2021 highs. Then you could look at it the flip side of that. You could say, well, crude oil was trading at $95 two months ago, okay, and now it's trading at $73, okay? And it really just had guy a huge head fake, and we'll talk about that later on in the week in market call, I think, a little bit. But look at the dollar, how much it's come in le- recently. Look at the 10-year yield at four and a quarter versus 5% a month and a half ago. I mean, there are some bullish backdrops for this, but I want to go to Friday afternoon because I think this is really important. Fed Chair Powell was speaking, and we've talked about this. I think we talked about it last Monday on the pod, talking about the easing of financial conditions, right? And that's what really what we've seen, right, with rates coming in, and we've seen that flood into risk assets in a way. And I think it was interesting on a day that saw the S&P up maybe 60 basis points on Friday, first day of the month, like we said, and a day that we saw the NASDAQ up about the same or so, the ARC. ETF was up 5%, okay? Despite Powell saying, hey, listen, we might not be done with rate hikes. He's worried about the easing of financial conditions, guy. What does that mean to you on the first day of the last month of the year after the best month we've had in stocks in a very, very long time that they are just crowding into the ARC crap? 
Well, I think about that. I mean, that, well, first of all, in a very one-dimensional way, it just goes to show that the ARC ETF is so basically beholden and contingent upon rates being low. If you think about all the stocks, the 10 stocks that comprise the top of her list or their list, very interest rate sensitive names. I mean, there's no denying that most, if not all of those stocks topped out in the fall of 2021 into early 2022. Now, coincidentally, with the bond market starting to go the other way. So number one, if the only play for those stocks is if rates go lower, we're going to do well. Well, as you say, have at it. So your point about Jerome Powell, it does, I'm sure it does not make him happy to see the stock market and risk assets do what they're doing in the face of what he's been saying. And I've said this for a while, and it's been a very one-dimensional thing. The market is saying, you know what? We don't care. We're going to get ahead of the rate cuts early next year. We're not going to sit around and wait for you to do it. We're going to start getting ahead of it now. And listen, it's been the right thing to do. But as Liz has pointed out a number of times, as Liz Ann Saunders said a couple of weeks ago, and to a certain extent, what Mike Wilson said on the podcast, be careful what you wish for, because historically, that's the exact wrong time to be buying stocks. Now, maybe they can gauge this and sort of thread that needle buying stocks and then getting out and pivoting into early next year. But next year, 2024, as poorly as 2023, I thought set up. I think that's what we're looking at 2024, if not a tad worse, given that I think unemployment's going to start to move in a very significant way to the upside. I've gotten a lot of things wrong this year, but one thing that I will absolutely say I got right in the last two to three months, mid-October, the market was pricing in the first cut being in July of next year. And I said, they're going to pull it forward. It's going to continue to come forward and it's going to come forward fast. It came forward a month, about two weeks later, after we got jobs data. Then it came forward another month in the CPI data. In the last two weeks, I believe I said something like, I will not be surprised if we've priced in the first cut in March before the end of this year. I sit here today looking at this screen, 65% chance of a cut in March. By the end of next year, five cuts priced in. This has come forward so fast. And look at any chart about what the Fed does and when they do it. It's not the hikes, it's the cuts. And as those cuts get pulled forward more and more, the window of time between that last hike and the first cut continues to close. And that window is when the market tends to hold up pretty well. The market has held up pretty well. But when the market stops holding up well is when we approach that first cut. And especially immediately after that first cut is when pain usually comes to fruition. We're seeing signs of it. Guy, you posted on Twitter last night about gold. I said, I care. I do care because it matters. And actually, by the way, I'm going to name this podcast before we're even done recording it. And Guy, you're going to be proud of me for this one. How everything still turns to gold. I think that's the name of it. <laughs> Little think- Led's homage to Led Zeppelin. There you go. <laughs> that, yeah, because it's something that the bulls will accuse people like us of ignoring the market. We look back at the bulls and say, well, how do you explain yield curve inversions? How do you explain rallies in gold? How do you explain that small caps can't get out of their way? There's a lot of things that are screaming caution. How do you explain the LEIs? How do you explain manufacturing PMI? I mean, I could go on and on and on. There are so many things adding up in that column. You have to pay attention. So we could have a little conundrum with Guy Adami because I have a feeling I'm in his head a little bit here. I was thinking maybe after the gold rush guy might have been (laughs) a little. So like in his, you got to understand Guy Adami's 
had very complicated <laughs> uh-huh. Led Zeppelin, uh-huh. Neil Young. I mean, there is a battle going on in there. So we'll see how it shakes out. You're going to have to see gonna... market, market call can have but, the other one. You know, I don't know yeah. if, can, if we can do this or not, if we could put it in the show notes. But what, is, what do you call when Spotify sends you the, the, the thing? The rap. The rap. The rap. Is yeah, that with yeah. a W or just an R? Yeah, a W. A w. Wrapped. Well, I find myself for the second year in a row in the top one half of 1% of amazing. the global Led Zeppelin fans in the freaking world. And my top 10 bands, it's interesting. You practice what you preach. My top five bands this year have been Led Zeppelin, Bruce, The Who, I want to say the Almond Brothers and the Rolling Stones, although the Beatles might have snuck in there. And that, I'm true to my word. Anyway, back to you. Yeah, and, and Neil Young can't be in there because he pulled his music years ago. Which is unfortunate because I will tell you that until you've heard Powderfinger live, you haven't lived. This is just an aside because I saw the story this morning. Spotify is having their third round of layoffs in, I think, a year. And I think it's like to the tune of 17,000, okay? And that's the lot. We've been talking about the jobs picture and, and what's next to fall. And the headline that I saw on Bloomberg was like, listen, as the company fights for profitability, I mean, these are things that we've talked about a lot. So I just want to kind of put that out there. And I wonder as we get into the new year, if we're going to see annualizing of some of the big cuts that we saw in tech and whether now it's time to do it again as they're losing pricing power and the like here and so trying to defend those margins. So for whatever that's worth, I just want to hit on this really quickly. So the average 60-40 portfolio, 60 stocks, 40 in bonds did the best since 1991. Obviously, we know yields came in the fastest they probably ever came in on a percentage without actual cuts and stocks ricocheted. And to your point, Liz, what happens next is that if yields were to come in, stocks don't participate because they're doing it, guy, to your point, careful what you wish for. And I just want to make a point. This was from Market Watch a month ago, okay? A month ago. We're not in Kansas anymore. Why the 60-40 portfolio might be dead and what to do now. I mean, pretty fascinating sort of stuff if you want to bookend that one-month period, which brings me to Barron's. And I just, guys, I got to tell you, and I'm looking at it, I have it up right here. I don't get the magazine anymore, but if you go to Barron's.com and then you click on the magazine, you'll see what is on the physical magazine. Okay. This is the, the headline. This is the cover. NVIDIA stock is still undervalued. So are these two smaller AI plays. The next story below it, Microsoft got an AI boost. It's far from over. Here's another story. PepsiCo is undervalued. It's time to snack on some shares. Buy this stock. It has 50 years of dividend growth, and there's more to come. Oh, here's another one. City CEO, how we're turning the bank around. The bullish stuff again and again. I mean, it's shocking. Like, there's no caution, and that's kind of my point. And so this is the sort of stuff that a lot of folks, whether you're an advisor, whether you're some self-directed sort of, this is what you're fed all day long. You know what I'm saying? And I guess my point about the strategist who basically threw in the towel late last year, you know what I mean, when they were just through with the bear market, they defended themselves the whole way down. All the Barron's stories were probably really negative on the lows at this time last year, Guy. So just from a sentiment standpoint, I just think it's important not to get too caught up in some of this stuff. Liz just said it's outlook season, but a lot of these publications are trying to do the same sort of stuff. You and I, Guy, are going to start drilling down on our acronyms for fast money in the not-so-distant future for 2024. Do you know what I'm saying? And yours is doing pretty well because Snap has gotten off the mat in a major way, so we'll see how that plays out. But Danny Moses talks about this. Elizabeth does as well. It's very difficult especially in an environment where things are going higher, to be that voice that says, you know what, 
caution flag here. We think things are going lower. I mean, that I don't want to say career risk because that's a bit hyperbolic, but you put yourself out there on an island without question. And Barron's is not impervious to this as well. I mean, they have to sell publications or subscriptions or whatever it is they do. And I think history has taught us that if you're positive and effusive in your praise of things, you're probably going to be much better off, especially when you have a backdrop that's working for you. So I understand why you're bringing that up. I think it's a good point. And we could probably shoot holes in every single one of those arguments or articles that they have, but they're in the business of selling things as well. Now, again, I'm not trying to come here and say, you know, the negative thesis is the highbrow, the people that do all the work and grind and look below the surface, because I don't think that's entirely true either. But I think you have to look all around you and say, okay, to Liz's point earlier, I understand why stocks are going higher, but these are the reasons why you should be concerned going forward. And by the way, those reasons have been here this entire year. They haven't gone away. They've just progressively gotten a little bit worse. So I don't know how at the end of the day that can shake out positively for equities. One of the things that will always be true about markets is that you have to be careful when things are at extremes. Sentiment can also be at extremes. Now, this happens in bearish and bullish ways. But if you look at the main measure of sentiment, which is that AAII survey, so bears versus bulls, you can see it right now. And the bears are at a really, really low level. The bulls are at a really, really high level. That is a huge spread between that's an extreme. So no matter if the bears or the bulls flip directions, whoever ends up on top, the gap that is there right now is likely to close. It's likely to narrow. And I'm willing to bet that the bears come back in as soon as the market starts to turn down. To go back to a theme that we had at the top of the show, when you are either a player, a coach, doesn't matter, how do you reset the team? We know that my dad was a basketball coach for a very, very long time. Basketball is one of those games that a team gets on a run, right? They get into this scoring run. You can't stop them. If you're the opposing team, you're biting your nails like, oh, my God, slow this down. That coach usually calls a timeout. Full court press, maybe? You, say, you just change things up a well, little bit? Well, you, you call two, a timeout. Guy, maybe, you, you, maybe you ice them. Yeah, do right? something like you that. You slow them down. Yeah, okay. But if you're the coach that's with the team that's on a run, you absolutely do not call a timeout. You let it run. You let it keep going. You let it exhaust itself. You let the momentum keep running until the momentum is no longer there. We're in a place where the momentum is there. The momentum is there in growth stocks. Let it keep running. It will eventually exhaust itself. I think we're getting to a point where the extremes are coming in and it's it doesn't make a ton of sense anymore. And we're pricing in cuts sooner and sooner, which right now looks bullish. It won't look bullish forever. So I think you just let it run out of steam and it will. So Guy, let me ask you this, switching gears a little bit. So this would be something that I think we've heard a parade of bears for you know over 10 years talk about China and ultimately, you know, how that kind of debt bubble that has been just inflating, ultimately when it does burst, there will be major repercussions back here and, and the like. And so here was an article in the Financial Times over the weekend, Chinese borrowers default in record numbers as economic crisis deepens defaults are at record highs. Look at this, a total of eight and a half million people, most of them between the ages of 18 and 59 are officially blacklisted by authorities after missing payments on everything from home mortgages to business loans. And that doesn't even talk about like, what's going on in the commercial real estate space. I mean, like the 
per grand. It seems like there's headlines every weekend. We're talking about trillions of dollars in debt that that seems like it's like on the brink of having defaults somewhere along the chain here. And, and I bring it up because, again, talking about letting it run out, sooner or later, something has to give. And so we spent a lot of time over the last few weeks talking about President Xi's visit here and how we met with all our political luminaries and business luminaries, and they made a lot of sort of promises. Nothing's really come to pass. We're seeing, you know, a bunch of funky stuff. You mentioned it again in your tweet. You know, you threw geopolitical in there, you know, the same way as we might have been worried into 2022 about what might happen with Russia and Ukraine. It feels like the closer we get to 2024 and maybe it's the election cycle here, maybe it's a weak incumbent president. You know what I mean? Maybe it's the Chinese knowing that there are distractions in Europe. There are distractions in the Middle East that they might basically do just something, right, that, that causes greater tension between us and China at a time where their economy, you made this point, youth unemployment, all this stuff going on in, in the credit markets over there. How do you distract their own people? How do you reinvigorate an economy that is in a deflationary spiral right now? And so I wonder if risk assets here are not pricing a potential risk in China in 2024. There's no way that risk assets here, Elizabeth can speak to this as well. I mean, what risk assets are pricing here, not only a soft landing, but the fact that we're going to pivot and recover in a way that probably we've never done historically. That's what the stock market and risk assets, I think, are saying. But I think below the surface, it's a much different story. And you're right. I don't think the market's pricing in any things that are going on in China at all. I think to the certain extent that trip that she made to the United States was, look, it's lip service. I know we championed it as this cooling of relations between U.S. and China. I mean, that's really not accurate at all, I don't think. Things have not improved at all. And if you go back and look, the four times prior that we sent people over to China, yes, the headlines coming back where we made progress, we're encouraged only to something to happen in the ensuing week or week and a half or two weeks after the visits. And I think to a certain extent, you're going to see the same thing here. China, let's just be crystal clear. They have no interest in seeing our economy do well, regardless of what you may read. They're in it for 50 years. We're typically in things for five minutes. And if they can somehow weaken the United States and our markets, it might hurt them in the short term. It will help them in the long term. So to answer your question, there is no way that a 4,600 S&P or wherever we're trading right now is pricing in the weakness in China and the subsequent things that can happen there. Liz, household debt as a percentage of GDP almost doubled over the past decade to 64% in China in September. Think about that. Youth unemployment hit a record 21.3%. I mean, these are the sorts of numbers you say to yourself, it could only happen in a totalitarian regime where it's not bubbling up. So do you think, and again, I started this conversation by saying that folks have been warning about the risks of a Chinese economic implosion for a very long time, and not a whole heck of a lot has come to pass. But if I think back, Guy, to 2018, the Fed had to basically turn tide on their rate hiking cycle, okay, because there was a global growth scare, and a lot of it had to do with China at the time. And we know 2015 and 16, a lot of volatility that we had in our markets was associated with China growth and the like here. So I'm curious, is this something that you think we should be focused on as we head into the new year? Absolutely. I absolutely do. And and if you just... If you dig deeper even under the surface of the S&P and look at the sector behavior this year, year to date, top sector infotech, nobody's surprised by that, bottom sector utilities, the spread between them is 62 or 63 percent 
That is huge. And if you think about just the natural answer to this question, what are the sectors that are the most exposed to China in the U.S.? I'm going to go with tech and communications, right? Those are the top two sectors in the S&P right now. Unless somebody's going to argue with me that staples and utilities are very exposed to China, I don't think they are. But tech and communications, the most exposed, the best performing sector so far this year, the market is absolutely not pricing this in. And there's probably a lot more risk in those returns to give back just because China continues to heat up. Now, the youth unemployment rate is one thing. The household debt, I think, is much more concerning. This is something that I talk about a lot in the United States. And I know that our household debt compared to GDP, our household debt compared to income is not concerning right now. But the trends are headed in a concerning direction. And credit card debt, delinquencies in credit card debt, I read last week that most of those delinquencies are in younger borrowers. So if we're looking at any parallels, you've got a youth unemployment rate in China that's high and rising. You've got a household debt problem that's bubbling up. And now in the United States, we've got a debt concern that is probably hitting younger borrowers harder than older borrowers. So there are parallels here. Maybe we are just later to the party. This is a party I don't want to be at. You know, historically, people think that somehow lowering rates strengthens us. I would push back and say, again, you know where I stood five, six years ago. But if we had stayed on that same trajectory, it would have been painful for a shorter period of time. I think we'd be, you can't prove the counterfactual. But I think we'd be much stronger right now if, in fact, we stayed that way. And I think the same thing is going to happen now. I think it would be a mistake to start to cut rates. I mean, that's what the market is clamoring for. The same way people that are working out are clamoring for a break, when in essence, they should continue to work out, fight through the pain, and you'll be stronger in the long run. I mean, that might be a sloppy parallel, but it's absolutely true. Now's the time to fortify ourselves, not to weaken ourselves by lowering rates. Again, my opinion. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And just to be fair with Barron's, there was an op-ed by a guy named Mark Chandler. That's Mark with a C. China's economy is shifting. The world isn't ready for it. I thought this was interesting. Economists argue that China's imbalance favoring investment over consumption threatens global prosperity. Conventional wisdom suggests that China should boost consumption. It can absorb more of its own surplus. This sounds right in the abstract, but in concrete terms, it seems environmentally and politically tone deaf. It puts the U.S. in a position of telling other countries what they can do to help uh, America and pushes the development model that is predicated on continued environmental degradation. I thought this was just interesting, like discussion about some of these changing dynamics, both the deglobalization and our reliance on them and what the global economy relies on them for. We'll put that in the show notes. I thought that was kind of an interesting conversation. All right. Last thing we before we get out of here, Guy, um, on the earnings front this week, we are not done. We're going to have Toll Brothers. We're going to have Dollar General. We're going to have Lulu. And I threw all of those three companies in there together because they all have the ability to say something very different about the U.S. economy or the U.S. consumer. Obviously, the supply-demand dynamics, the interest rate dynamics with mortgage rates, I mean, that's a story for Toll Brothers. They're more on the high end. Lulu, a bit of a consumer discretionary story or very much a, a consumer discretionary story. And then obviously Dollar General. We've been tracking what a lot of these dollar stores have been saying. Guy, how do you want to thread the needle between what your expectations are between those three com- uh, companies and their commentary? Because a lot of the commentary that we ha- heard out of retailers over the last couple of weeks was fairly cautious for the most part as we head into the holiday season and the new year. And think about when the commentary started to get cautious. It's when we started to hear from the dollar stores, specifically Dollar General, but then Dollar Tree and five below. So in middle of September, maybe it was September 23rd, I think Dollar Gen made a three and a half, four year low. 
105 or thereabouts-ish. It's bounced since then. But their commentary, I think, is going to be consistent with what they've been seeing all along. And I think potentially it's going to scare some people. Lululemon on the other side of the coin is flirting with their all-time high. I think it was 475 or so that we made this time in 2021, effectively late November, early December of 2021. So keep an eye on that. If you're looking for a potential technical setup, Dan, and we'll talk to Carter about this, I'm sure, later in the week, the potential for a double top in Lululemon is very strong, especially given the run that it's had recently. So out of all of them, I'm really keen on hearing what Dollar Gen, not necessarily how the stock trades, but the commentary around the earnings release. Liz, on the home builders, you know, Toll Brothers in September, before rates topped out, was basically at an all-time high. It looked like it was going to break out to a, a new high, then sold off 20%, okay, as yields went up to 5% or so. It's now since gone from basically 68 bucks to where it's trading right now at 88 bucks at an all-time high. So the, the sentiment around home builders has just changed so dramatically in such such a short period of time. So is it just rates? Is it the financial conditions have eased and maybe like consumers feel like they can finally make a move in this weird supply demand dynamic as it relates to housing? Home builders are like semiconductors. They're an indicator of cyclicality. They're an indicator of appetite for risk. And I do think most of it has to do with rates. As rates come down, housing is going to look more attractive. I think the other part of it, the other layer, is that the labor market is still strong. And we know that as long as the labor market is strong, consumers feel like they're allowed to spend and that they want to spend. And there have been a lot of consumers that maybe have wanted to purchase a house but have held back because rates went up so much. If that appetite is still out there, and this is actually something that Josh Brown talks about, if that appetite is still out there and we've got so many younger families, new, newly married maybe, building a family, they want to buy a house, the appetite will be there as rates come down, which keeps prices elevated. The housing market, although we talk about it as an indicator pretty often, it's such a slow-moving indicator that you can't use it as what would be considered a coincident indicator, right? So home builders are probably the only element of the housing market that can be used as a coincident indicator. As sentiment has risen, and as I just talked about that spread between bulls and bears, I would expect home builders to go up in that environment, and they have, but I would also expect them to come down just as quickly if that reverses. Yeah, I'll just say this. I agree with that. And if we do see unemployment tick up the way Guy suggests that it could once it gets above 4%, I do not think you're going to be wanting to buy home builders despite where yields have come in because it just feels like that is the last piece of this economic puzzle that we've been talking about for the better part of this year. All right, we covered a lot of ground here. We got a little football week 13 that was interesting and in how we tied it into like how we are thinking about the season that we are in in the markets here. So that was great. So appreciate the conversation, folks. Liz, you will be back with Guy and me on Market Call on Thursday. Carter Braxton Worth is going to be joining us. That is Monday through Thursday at the Risk Reversal Media YouTube. So check it out. It's blowing up their people. And then Guy and I had a great conversation with Dr. Arsani William from Logos Capital. So stick around for that. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Guy. We'll see you on the Market Call. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros.
iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Welcome to the On The Tape podcast. Now, Dan Nathan, we've discussed and had conversations with a lot of interesting people. But I'm going to rattle a few things off because clearly this next guest had trouble getting into school. <laughs> Stanford undergrad, BS in biology, honors neuroscience and immunology. Incredible. Stanford University Graduate School of Business. And then he said, you know what? For shits and giggles, Harvard Medical School. I mean, why not, right? At that point, why not? So it's clear that you know your safety schools, you had to sort of find your safety schools. Good for you. I'm sorry that happened, but we are here with Dr. Arsani William. He's the CIO of Logos Capital Management, and I got to tell you something. It's an honor to have you join us here. It's such a pleasure, and I see so much of you guys on CNBC, and this is uh, this is a big honor for me. Well, it's an honor for us as well, and as, as I said, you know, I gave a sort of a 15-second snippet, but people love hearing about backgrounds and how you got to where you are, so if you can indulge us for a minute or so. Just tell us your journey and how you've gotten to this point. Look, all those degrees just point to the fact of how zigzagged and distracted I really was in trying to come to the true north of of what I want to do on a day-to-day basis. I mean, my story is rather simple. I grew up and was raised with a family of doctors and pharmacists. All I knew really was my father having to go to the clinic and then the OR day in, day out, and ultimately my aunt and uncle's who operated in various domains and had different interests with inside medicine. So the only thing that was on my mind when I entered Stanford was focusing on a degree in biology. What was really fascinating at the time is that institutions like Stanford really compel you to do research. And I was fortunate enough just by trial and error and shooting off 30 different emails to get one reply from a renowned professor named Dr. Lawrence Steinman, who at that time ran the Department of Immunology and was a pediatric specialist focused on a disease called multiple sclerosis. He took me into his research lab. And what I had not known at the time was he was a pioneer of various drugs that had made their way all the way from early discovery in the lab through multiple clinical phase one through three trials, and then ultimately through FDA approval, among them being one of the largest drugs for multiple sclerosis called Tysabri. 
So it was in that lab over three and a half years where I began to learn the inner workings of what actually is behind the makings of a molecule. What does drug development discovery really entail? And what do we do on the bench that ultimately translates into profound human discovery in the end? And despite the fact that I like to say I have cured MS 20 times over in mice, we have not successfully been able to bring a single drug under my watch all the way through into any FDA-approved kind of phase one clinical study because drug development is really hard. So after, after finishing up my undergraduate degree, it was a pretty basic path that I took that many do when they decide that they want to become a clinician with the idea that science is a fascinating part of our world and ecosystem. It is clearly developing. There are so much innovative new products and different protocols in medicine that are being established. And ultimately, how can we care for humanity? And so medicine was my answer at the time. It was all I knew. So I ultimately ventured off into the cold, cold winter in Boston. And when I was thinking about in the beginning of what I wanted to do, the only thing on my mind was surgery. I loved surgical oncology. I was fascinated by the work of what cancer surgery entailed. And so I naturally gravitated towards sarcoma and orthopedic oncology was a place to go. So early on, while working with a lot of the professors at MGH and Brigham and Women's Hospital, I actually just landed at Harvard Business School one evening watching a symposium and seminar on CRISPR-Cas9 therapeutics. And this was back in the day in 2011 to 2012 when no one knew what gene editing or CRISPR-Cas9 or mRNA even was at that time. And I was fascinated by the fact that you had this Microsoft Word processor that could theoretically go into the human genome, edit any one of 3 billion different base pairs, change a single nucleotide from a C to an A, and modify an entire disease. And to do that with a pair of molecular scissors at the interface of such precision was something that I knew would profoundly change the world of medicine. And my little word, existing within the surgical suite of the OR just began to expand. And I began to ask a lot more questions as to what is going on within the biotech revolution that so many in Cambridge and Kendall Square were speaking to, and then began to, to realize that if I were to ever make a break in the industry, I at least needed to know what a cash flow statement or at least a balance sheet was. So I applied to the program, ultimately made my way back to the West Coast, and then was fortunate enough to decide in the end that maybe kind of biotechnology investing and the interface of medicine and finance would be a route that I would explore. What's fascinating about that is, and I've been fortunate enough to understand, again, a very minute portion of what you obviously intuitively understand, but even though this was many years ago, we're in the very early innings of what you just described. The breakthroughs seemingly happen now on a weekly basis, but all that molecular splicing tech, CAR-T therapy, I mean, all the things we've heard about over the last five years, groundbreaking, but we're not at the end. We're more towards the beginning, which I think makes your position at Logos fascinating in terms of the opportunities presented to you. I think the fundamental driving force behind the life sciences sector is really this expert exponential growth of scientific knowledge and its application. And it's really built upon and results from this very long historical journey where a lot of the science is incubated in the labs, like that of Dr. Larry Steinman and others all around the world, before we finally get small, unique insights of breakthroughs to where how does this cellular protein ultimately interact with a new molecular substance to change a human disease and profoundly alter more or less the course of a patient's life. The progress, I would say, that we're starting to see today, and maybe that we've seen in the last five to 10 years, is coming on almost what I would define as an asymptote, to where 
we're making monumental leaps far beyond what we were able to even envision 20 years ago. And I would say with the advent of things like AI, the processing of all of these large quantities of data from bioinformatics to all clinical summaries from clinical studies that are held at you know, CROs, all of this will continue producing novel insights at a far higher and faster pace than we've seen before. So breakthroughs, like you just mentioned, I would say, in CAR-Ts, in the GLP-1 space of how to remodel an entire metabolic system, things and breakthroughs that are happening not only in gene editing, but also in RNA editing, taking it even one step further beyond where Moderna had gone with how to encapsulate messenger RNA into these nanolipid particles. And then we're seeing the progress of this day in, day out. This past year, we just had the approval, I would say, of the first amyloid antibodies for the treatment of Alzheimer's, something that has been a long sought dead end road for so many different years. And then we're focusing and working on new pathways for neurodegenerative disease to be able to treat things like spinal muscular atrophy and old types of orphan disease. And then in the end, the entire biotechnology ecosystem is even moving towards new domains of bioelectronics with what Elon Musk is doing. So all of these advancements are really exciting to see. And I think that we're sort of hitting a new pace and a new stride than we've seen in the past. Yeah. Before we get to some of those mega trends that you just mentioned, because I know a lot of our listeners are, are pretty focused on them, at least on a high level, at least through the, the, the lens of the public markets. And when you think about just how biotech and large pharma have performed in the stock market this year, it's interesting. It seems like not too different than in the broader tech ecosystem. Also, it's like a handful of names and a couple of the stories are really captivating a, a lot of the interest in a way. But talk to us a little bit about, you, you kind of alluded to your in-house data science platform and your background in clinical trial outcomes and the like here. How do you guys develop like 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 kind of macro thesis? And so do you have a, like a top-down approach and a bottoms-up approach and kind of meet in the middle? And, and how do you kind of focus time horizon-wise and concentration-wise? Our focus at Logos has really been to invest in what we believe will be disease modifying and paradigm changing therapies. And so that's very few and far in between almost 450 different public companies that trade in the biotech sector. And what you'll notice is that the post-pandemic period for biotech after Moderna and BioNTech, lightning speed more or less just hit the lottery with multi-billion dollar vaccines that came out you know, through clinical trials at the fastest pace we've ever seen any clinical trial developed. The biotech sector since that point in time has had one of the largest dislocations in its entire history. And it's been proven to be a lot more challenging than I think many investors and folks expected entering both 22 and also this year in 23. I think in 2021 and 22, a lot of it was just zombie companies that really emerged, that were me too redundant, didn't have novel innovation or insight. They were patchwork between this CFO from this pharma company, this chief business development officer, this CEO that didn't necessarily have the congruence of what it takes to build a next billion dollar molecule. And I think that when we believed at that time in an area of persistently low interest rates, a lot of speculation that anything and everything could become the next Moderna platform, what you saw was greed really marry with what it can't, which is a very long-term investment cycle, which you need for drug development discovery. Most of these therapies will take eight years to make their way from proof of concept studies all the way to an FDA approval with a billion dollars and a lot of capital dilution that will happen along the way. So for us, when we think about markets, we have to ride the volatility. Biotechnology as a sector is going to be one of the most volatile backdrop subsectors that exist in the public markets. And that's because we're investing in a speculative annuity 
the drugs that we invest in today aren't real. They're not producing revenue. It is a probability of success that something that may play out three or five years will give you the license or the right for the next 15 years to accrue a $500 million or a billion dollar annuity. And so deep down, we have to first start with our research in the science, and it has to start fundamentally bottom up. The second thing that we do at Logos that I would say is quite unique is that we try to marry the fundamental biology and the mechanism of the drug with exactly how the clinical trial will be run. And that's an in-house data analysis system that we call Logos Analytics, which tries to apply the same type of due diligence into how do we dissect and break down a clinical trial so that we negate or minimize the number of false positives or false negatives that ultimately read out. And the classic example that I tend to use is that you can have a very good drug that is potent, that is selective, that absolutely targets the underpinnings of the disease of interest. But if you put that drug into a poorly designed clinical trial where you have not accounted for the variability in the patient population or the heterogeneity of the baseline demographics or the statistical powering of the study is insufficient to detect the delta, that great drug will never see the light of day with an FDA approval. And so our focus is just as intense in the clinical trial underwriting as I will say it is on the underlying mechanism and the underlying biological predisposition of why we're investing in the first place. One of the things that I will say about just biotechnology valuations overall is that we are able today to buy assets that are mid to late stage for prices that are at a higher discount than preclinical assets we were able to buy almost two years ago. And the valuation asymmetry that today exists in the sector, especially when we're looking at the public markets, is probably one of the most attractive opportunities we've seen. And if I gave you just a simple statistic that I was reading the other day that was fascinating, over 35% of publicly listed biotechnology companies today are trading below their cash level. That's something that's, that's quite extraordinary. Investors are saying that these management teams will destroy value as opposed to create it. And if you take a look at where we are, and aggregate all of the market caps of all publicly listed biotech today, it's actually less than 6% of what the top 15 pharmaceutical companies value stands for. Yet the sector in the next 10 years will produce 70% of all commercial drugs. And it will push forward 75% of all the intellectual property, yet it trades at one-tenth of the value of what the commercial behemoths basically trade at. So we think that valuations Really, I would say pinpoint to the fact that there certainly has been macroeconomic turbulence. Sentiment has hit rock bottom. We've been in this cycle to where we've had to eradicate a lot of companies that have been zombie-like that should have never been formed in the first place. But I do think we're turning a corner where if you are able to combine science with high predictive success on the clinical trials, I think you've got a pretty good code breaker for being able to make it through in the right way. Okay, so here I'm going to insert myself. And if I'm off base, please, you won't be the first person that has added me. But you know, you mentioned that over the last two years is when you've been able to buy a lot of these assets or companies at discounts. And I would submit it's not coincidental that that basically coincided with the Fed raising interest rates, right? So in the, in the world of free money, everything in terms of valuation is probably trades not where it should. And as interest rates go higher, I think there's sort of this come to Jesus moment where you start to separate the wheat from the chaff. So I think there's sort of a good news, bad news, I guess, in terms of your world. The good news is the landscape sets up for you really well. The good news also is that 
terms of things that we focus on, some of the geopolitical risk and all the noise that we talk about on a day-to-day basis, that really has no bearing on you in large part. The bad news is the binary aspect of this industry is daunting to say the least. And it's not binary week to week. You're making a bet that you hope will play out, as you said, you know, probably on a two to a five-year basis. How does that work for what probably is a very specific investor base? Yeah, that's a really that's a really thoughtful question. When when we think about the interest rate impact in biotechnology stocks, there, there certainly is an impact. One would be avoidant, not to say that there is, but you can model what that impact is in a discounted cash flow model. And what you find is that the vast majority of biotechnology companies, when you look at wax and discount factors, are already discounted at a rate between fifteen to twenty percent, depending on their clinical stage. When we've taken a look at it. And we've said that we're going to get to something like a five to a five and a half percent range for interest rates. The cumulative effect from the start of the interest rate hike cycle should be around 35%. Now, we've certainly exceeded that. Biotech has dislocated over 67% from its peak in February of 2021 to where it is today. And you're showing the largest dispersion in terms of the sector ETF versus the S&P or even just the NASDAQ, something that historically we have never seen a wider gap in dispersion between our sector versus the broader market. So you have to ask, why is that? Because the fundamental picture isn't necessarily aligning with what we're seeing play out in reality and play out on the screens when we're looking at stock prices. I think there's two reasons for that. One is that if you break down market cap segment of various biotech companies by the sub 200 million, the sub 500, the sub 1 billion, and the 1 billion and above, that there's a clear linear array of the further you are from recognizing any revenue, the larger and the harder that you have fallen. And so ultimately, it's really small cap biotech that has borne the brunt of the interest rate hikes, whereas you've actually seen large cap and even the larger mid cap complex not necessarily experience that steep of a decline as their smaller counterparts. The second reason is, is that if investors do not have to take binary risk to where if a clinical trial fails, it's not infrequent to see these companies trade at or below cash and collapse 70 to 90 percent of value in a single day, then they don't need to. And you've got other places in the public markets that have been working quite well. If you've been riding the AI theme, if you've been riding the tech bounce, There isn't a reason to take on ancillary risk to where you may not have a differentiated thesis, an angle, or an edge in order to diagnose whether or not a specific clinical candidate actually has what it needs to make it all the way through and become a commercial drug. So for us, actually, that that gives us two opportunities. And here's what I would say is that one is when we take a look at our sector and we compare a lot of the phase two and phase three companies that we believed had drugs two or three years ago to where they are today, maybe even two or three years closer to approval, the valuations are much more attractive, whereas the thesis has not changed. My revenue hasn't changed. My prevalence and incident estimates for the disease category haven't changed. And ultimately, the value of the company for pharma certainly has not. The second thing that makes it really interesting is that if one were to subscribe to the idea that we're hopefully approaching the end of this pretty difficult interest rate hike cycle, what are the other vectors that are at play, at least in our category of biotechnology, that may propel biotech valuations to re-rate or hopefully catch up? And in our mind, the catch-up could even be a coiled spring that's really let loose. 
And there's two big things that come to mind. The first is that pharmaceutical companies are really about to face a world of pain. And there's seismic shifts that are happening within the pharma ecosystem that will ultimately lead to major consolidation in the sector over the course of the next three to five years. One of those impacts is really the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, where for the first time, the U.S. government has the ability to directly negotiate on behalf of CMS and Medicare directly for prescription drugs. And what that law tells you is that by the mid-2030s, that list will grow to over 100 different drugs. And we don't have 100 drugs that more or less annualized to over a billion dollars in sales across the sector. So like Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, says, you've created an artificial patent clip where you've synthetically truncated the number of years that these pharmaceutical companies and developers have in order to more or less annualize at their peak sales by taking a 15 or 18-year patent cliff and crunching it down to nine if you're a small molecule or 13 if you're a biologic. The second key thing in regards to why pharma really has to look at the sector as almost, I would say, the only mall to shop for new growth and new assets is that the return on R&D for pharmaceutical companies has really been abysmal over the last decade. There was a recent research report that came out from Deloitte that shows that maybe with the exception of 2021 and 22, where you saw a 6% bump on ROIC for pharma R&D, over the last decade, it's averaged at 3%. Yet pharma continues to spill over 20% of their top-line revenue into R&D, yet they have very little to prove for it. And when you look across pharmaceutical companies and how they have to redefine themselves due to these patent cliffs, most of that redefining comes from licensing, collaborations, and outright acquisitions from biotechnology companies. So with Medicare direct negotiation, with a major patent cliff for pharma drugs that is coming in 2028 to 2030, and finding where valuations are, where we're looking at seven-year troughs for the biotech sector, it seems like You've got all parties aligned on how to converge on a bid and ask price in order to come through and lead to a lot of sector consolidation. So we think that outside of positive clinical trial updates, really asymmetrically attractive valuations for late stage assets and fundamental drivers that will push forward M&A, we think the sector should rates not move up to 10% at least in the coming two years. We think that the sector is actually poised for a pretty good bounce back and hopefully at least a dispelling of that large delta between the sector and the broader market. Arsene, just to put a little a bow on that, for our listeners, let's say, don't have access to, to, to investing in funds like yours that are really doing, again, all that bottoms-up work and, and that top-down sort of analysis and all the deep fundamental research that you're doing and, and the portfolio construction, the risk management, all that sort of stuff. Do XBI and IBB, did those ETFs, are, are they a way to express that view if you are just a self-directed investor looking for those sorts of, let's call it asymmetric sort of outcomes. You're not going to get it in an idiosyncratic way, you know what I mean? But could they, over the next couple of years, if a lot of what you just explained plays out, is that one way for them to do it? I think if you want to express a view on innovation and kind of take a holistic perspective that without looking at the sum of the parts, that overall the industry should produce enough value to usurp the value destruction. Because remember, 90% of all assets that start in phase one will never ultimately make it to FDA approval. I think the XBI and the IBB are two good sector proxy ETFs that one can own. That being said, 
do I think that they resemble the underpinnings of what is truly happening in the biotech industry? It's hard to say yes. I'll just make it easy to say for you because you're being nice. I mean, at best, either one of those ETFs could rally 35 to 50%. I mean, that if I said that to you, that's a best case scenario. In your world, that's bare minimum in terms of what you're, you're looking for anywhere from 5 to 25x return. So there's no way the XBI or any of the biotech ETFs can mimic or can come close to what you're attempting to do, given everything you've just said for the last 15 or 20 minutes. I would agree with that. And I think that we exist in a world to where if we can pick and we can choose among the haves versus the have-nots, I would rather do that than have a sector ETF that combines everything on an equal weighted basis like the XBI typically does. And I think that if you are, I would say, just a retail investor that may not have a science background, what you can still diligence is, do we have a good, strong management team that can effectively allocate capital efficiently to where they're not pursuing a strategy of redundancy, excess spend, or pipeline development to where they're going to be the sixth, seventh, or eighth entry into the sector? And then afterwards, as you begin to delve in and learn more about the different domains that exist, whether you're interested in cardiovascular drugs or drugs for cancer or drugs for the eye or drugs for the liver, that point in time, you can start delving into how does this clinical trial differentiate from another. But I look, I would agree with that statement. I think the sector overall might actually have a good bounce on an ETF level, but we're not, we're looking for certainly excess return beyond that. Let's move up to the, the pharma. And you just said that big pharma has some headwinds for a whole host of reasons, but there's one sector in, in particular, there's two stocks and you know what they are, Eli Lilly and Novo Nordis. They, they make a combined $1 trillion in market cap. Okay. And so Let's just talk about these GLP ones. I know this is something that you've done a lot of work on. You're not a Johnny come lately to this. I am a Johnny come lately to this. A year ago, I'll just tell you this, my personal experience, I'm 6'2", I was 50 years old, I was at my max weight of 225, okay? High blood pressure, high cholesterol, sleep apnea, a handful of other things. My doctor says, you gotta get things under control here, okay? And he said, a lot of these things get better if you lose 25 or so pounds, all right? I get diagnosed with pre-diabetic symptoms, I go to a few different doctors. I, I finally settle with Robati, actually, which is one of the largest prescribers of these GLP-1s. And it's interesting to me, in 10 months, I've lost 15% of my body weight on Wagovi. That's what they say can happen, right? But it's not just that. I've been working out more, nutrition, like all those sorts of things, and that's part of the program, and most importantly. But I'm sleeping better. I don't snore anymore. I get up, I work out more. Nutrition and ma maintaining a better nutrition is better. I have a, a lot of friends in the industry, okay, like yourself, who have these backgrounds, and there's a lot of differing views about these sort of things. For me, it's absolutely changed my life. I, I can't tell you how much better I feel. And then all of those readings, the cholesterol, the blood pressure, they're all down and everything is seemingly a lot better. Talk to us because I think this is just scratching the surface for most Americans. Lily's ZipBound just got FDA approval for obesity. They just had it for prediabetes and the like here. I'm assuming that this is going to like really take off. I think some of the stuff I saw, the pricing is going to be 20% less or so than that of Novo's Wagovi. Give us your take on this space, at least it, you know, for a lot of our listeners, they're hearing about it. They've seen the fabulous gains in these big pharma stocks. What is your take on them as a doctor, as an investor and the like? And, and what sort of opportunities are going to be around for some of these other big pharma companies that are all working on daily orals or whatever the heck it is? There's a whole host of other things going on in the space. All right. So this is a gargantuan topic, but we'll, we'll, we'll try to break it down and maybe starting off just where, where the science has been, where it's going and, and why we're even here. But I'll tell you that 
The glip one and the obese and the impact on obesity has really been, I would say, the AI theme of healthcare for this year. And to understand, glip ones have been around the market for 20 years. And they've actually been used to control blood sugar levels and have functioned as, as really good frontline and even second-line treatments for a variety of different diabetic medications. Now, the new medications that have really kind of arisen, the Wagobis, the Ozempics, the Monjuros that have come around over the last several years, have really, I would say, taken it up a notch. Now, how do they work? That's a big question that I think a lot of people would be really curious about. And it's really simple. They actually stimulate insulin secretion. And what insulin does is it allows your cells to take up glucose. It inhibits the ability of the body to secrete another, I would say, protein called glucagon, which prevents more glucose from going into the bloodstream. The new drugs, the Wagobis, the Azemphics, the Monjuros, also, I would say, have ancillary effects that are more potent than their predecessors 20 years ago. They delay stomach emptying so that you feel fuller faster and longer, and ultimately that leads to more appetite control. They have an amazing effect in crossing the blood-brain barrier so that they can actually work on a small piece of the brain called the hypothalamus, which has a GLP-1 receptor that ultimately has a major impact on our appetite. And so with appetite suppression, with gastric fullness, with more blood go or more, excuse me, sugar moving into cells, they can influence your entire whole body's energy metabolism. The biggest thing that they did, and this might be something of about two or three years ago, is they changed how society thinks about obesity. And that society used to think of obesity as a lifestyle choice, but now we're beginning to think of it as a chronic disease to where we're evolving to think of the greatest risks to us may not even be necessarily infectious disease like was in the past with tuberculosis and with all types of different bacterial and microbial illnesses, but instead it's a disease that's caused by overnutrition. And that's diabetes, that's cardiovascular disease, and that's different cancers that actually have a high correlation with obesity. When you think about, you mentioned something very interesting about how their combined market cap is over a trillion dollars. If three years ago you told me that either Eli Lilly or Novo would exceed the combined market cap of both Merck and Pfizer, I would have laughed. I would have been like, that's an impossibility. There's no way. But it is, I would say, going to make such a big impact in both of their top line and just in the world of pharmaceutical revenue. And these are likely to be two of the biggest drugs that we've ever seen in the history of pharma development. And I'll tell you why. This past October, Nova Nordisk actually came out with the first outcomes clinical trial results of Wagovi. And that was a trial that was called the SELECT study. And what they did here was they enrolled 17,000 patients over the course of five years. And so they're giving you this window into what the long-term safety and what the long-term efficacy on these regimens and on these treatments really are. And in that study, the average patient lost about 10% of their body weight. Now, I know you said you had better results than that. And I'd say that even Novo has reported weight loss studies of about 15%. But in this study, just for all purposes, it was around 10% on average. But what they showed in terms of cardiovascular risk outcomes was truly something that was extraordinary. They showed an overall reduction of major heart problems, heart attacks, stroke, and even cardiovascular related deaths fell by over 20%. It cut the rate of heart attacks by 28%. And that's for patients that were already on statins and other medications that were meant to prevent heart problems from arising in the first place. And what's even more fascinating is that the entire population when you look at deaths in the placebo versus those that were maintained on drug, 
those that were maintained on Wagovi had a 19% lower rate of death from any cause, not just even from cardiovascular cause, but from any cause. So impressive results to say the least. And what people are really hoping for is that Monjuro or Eli Lilly's drug has even shown a greater weight loss benefit. And so they're running the same study with results that will come out in 2024. So it'll be interesting to see exactly what those results are and if we see an enhanced benefit on cardiovascular risk outcomes in the end. So the biggest point here is that they're also running phase three studies in chronic kidney disease, in sleep apnea studies, for NASH disorders. And so the pleiotropic effects of what these drugs will typically do, both on a cardiovascular system basis, but also on an anti-inflammatory basis, I think are yet to be seen. And in so much that the long-term safety continues to establish them as both safe for long-term treatment, I do think that they're going to make not just a major splash, but they will probably become the two largest selling pharmaceuticals we've ever seen. Your fund, Arsani, is not buying Lilly and hoping it quadruples from here, and you're not doing that with Novo, is my sense, although maybe you have an allocation, which is fine. But given everything now you've just said over the last couple minutes, the ancillary, the knockoff, the opportunities around these drugs are in their infancies by definition because these drugs are effectively in their infancies. To the extent you can speak about those investing opportunities, because I know you're looking at it. Let our audience hear a little bit about that. I, I, I wish we could have bought Eli Lilly and Nova Nordis, but those wouldn't qualify, unfortunately, with our mandate of small and mid-cap biotech. But what I will say is that we have asked the question of saying, this is where the puck is, where is it ultimately going? So there's two areas of focus for us. One has been that the weight loss that's experienced on Wagovi, Ozempic, and then Monjuro when you look at that weight loss, it's actually not all fat. 60% tends to be adipose tissue. 40% actually tends to be skeletal muscle mass and skeletal muscle loss. So is there a way that we can tilt the axis in order to enhance fat loss as opposed to leading patients that are on longer term treatments towards greater muscle loss, especially if they don't choose a workout regimen? That's the first question we're asking. The second question is a lot of patients are still scared of needles. And if you have to do a once a week needle injection, even if the needle gauge or the thickness of the needle is very small to where you barely feel a pinprick, but you can instead move to a more convenient dosing metric, such as an oral, that could be a pretty large opportunity as well. So there are companies in the SmithCap biotech space that have actually started looking at the two different molecular structures of what Eli Lilly and Novo are doing and trying to develop oral versions. And there's a clear race as Eli Lilly has now advanced to phase three, Pfizer is coming up with their own oral construct that they're going to report phase two trial results on in the next several months. You've got Amgen that's also working on new modalities. And so you've got this interesting race of now we've advanced beyond the subcutaneous race where Eli Lilly and Novo have dominated to who's going to win the oral race with the first tablet that can show just as demonstrable on efficacy and safety as the subcutaneous have. So that's an area of great, I would say, potential biotechnology stock picking. And there's a few companies out there that, that we've been interested and have invested in in the past. The second key thing on the muscle loss is that it's very interesting to see that Eli Lilly actually recently bought a private company called Versanis for around $1.6 billion in both upfront and then more or less milestone-based biobucks with the idea of, is there another drug? that we can effectively combine with the GLP-1s and the GIPs in order to offset that muscle loss. And they're in fact ours. And there have been a lot of research into what myostatin inhibitors can do, how myostatin inhibitors can be dosed, and the various ways to actually go about inhibiting myostatin. So 
stay tuned. There's more to do on the private side there than I would say is publicly listed on that side. But I do think that looking five, 10 years down the line, when we're looking at overall weight loss, it certainly won't be just 60% fat. You mentioned though that a couple of years ago, if you had told me a trillion dollars in combined market cap for those two and greater than a whole host of other names that have been in the 250 billion sort of market cap, you wouldn't have thought it. So what do you do from here? You just mentioned like a Pfizer, which has been cut in half from its highs, right? In late 2021, after the approval for their COVID shot and the like here, and you know, they're working on an oral and, and, and you say as they have more trials and they're doing it, you're broadening out the, the use cases for it. Are, are there going to be really good opportunities for some of these other, you know, large in pharma or is it kind of encapsulated right now in the valuations of these two? And we're likely to see some sort of like retracement in a way, because my mind works. I, I read a story over the weekend about how Zapound is going to be 20% less and what you just mentioned about the ability for other things. I say to myself, well, that sets up as a pretty decent long lily short Novo from here, right? And then maybe I can pick around the edges and, and have a small allocation to a Pfizer and an Amgen, that sort of thing. Do you guys think about these sorts of trends like that? Or are you more focused on, on the much smaller and mid-cap names? I think we have to because it's a symbiotic relationship in the ecosystem that exists between pharma, which, which quite frankly is going to provide a lot more money than investors will to the biotechnology complex and then what biotech companies can do through collaborations and licensing agreements in order to help serve their commercial larger peers. For a company like Pfizer, look, if you are not first, I would say, to the subcutaneous clip one and GIP space to where you have the golden crown of being able to monetize something that you know is one of the largest TAMs ever in the history of healthcare with a lead of being number one and number two, you're probably in the drawing board really figuring out how in the world am I going to make a fraction of what consensus estimates for one of these two drugs are. And if I'm third, fourth, fifth, sixth to market, even if I can never nab away at a few billion dollars, it certainly is not going to equate to anything that the first and second mover with the entire repository of knowledge that they built via their lead in terms of coming up with the next gens and the next gens and the next gens to keep this train moving forward. So yeah, you're absolutely right. The rest of format inside of Eli Lilly and Nova, the vast majority have actually underperformed this year. And it's been a lot of pressure because you look at the top line drivers for a lot of these pharma companies and their drugs that are going to be negotiated by Medicare in the coming three, four, five years, or they're facing major patent clips to where You've had generic approvals and biosimilar approvals by the FDA that are just waiting for that date of entry. And we know that over a few years, if you enter with a generic substitute, what happens is revenue declines by a substantial 60 to 80% for the vast majority. So Bristol-Myers Squibb, Bristol-Myers, 50% of the drugs that consummate their top-line revenue are looking at generic biosimilar entry by 2028. Pfizer is facing a similar predicament, and that's why they ended up purchasing Seattle Genetics for quite a hefty fee, because they need a new platform to be able to develop new drugs with longer IP that unfortunately can at least leverage all of the COVID cash that they were able to raise over the last several years and put it towards something that could be the next growth driver. How do they fix that problem? Like we touched on in the beginning, they are really going to have to buy their way out of growth. We think that consolidation in the industry isn't, I would say, a need to have. It's a must have. You've got players positioned in different ways. Eli Lilly and Novo, clearly they can buy in a more risk tuned manner to where they're buying for outer years in 2035 plus. Whereas you've got companies like the Mercs, the Pfizer's, 
potentially the Novartis's and the Roche's that actually need to buy for the next five to 10 years. And so we'll see what happens, but we do think that you are going to get a merger of need and want, and ultimately you're going to see a lot of consolidation over the next several years. You've piqued our curiosity. That's peaked with a Q, not a K. How do folks find Logos and learn more about you guys and gals there? On our website, which does need to get updated. I don't think we've had many updates since we launched it in 2019. Or they can email ir at logoscapital.com if they're ever interested. We're pretty active and I would say pretty excited about where the sector is going to go. There's a lot of amazing funds and amazing institutions that do a lot of great work, I would say, in the biotech ecosystem that have faced a lot of pain kind of over the last two or three years is this valuation downgrade has just been relentless. But ultimately, I think we're looking at turning a pretty big corner and very optimistic for both the sector and a lot of our peers as to how they manage through this. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Dr. Arsani William, you've been a great guest. We look forward to having you back. Thank you both. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.